Hi everyone, I'm David Green, Managing Partner for the Insight 222 People Analytics Programme. Welcome to Episode 1 of Series 14 of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. My guest this week is Dr. David Rock, who coined the term neuroleadership and is the co-founder and CEO of the Neuroleadership Institute, which has worked with over 50% of the Fortune 100 companies to make organisations better for humans through science. David has authored four successful books, including Your Brain at Work, a business bestseller, and has written for and been quoted in hundreds of articles about leadership, organisational effectiveness, and the brain. The centrepiece of my discussion with David is his SCARF model, which is based on neuroscience and is designed to help us work more effectively with others. When I came across the model a few years ago, it helped me better understand myself and change the way I interact in social situations. The SCARF model is comprised of five key domains that influence our behaviour in social and work situations. Firstly, status, our relative importance to others. Secondly, certainty, our ability to predict the future. Third, autonomy, our sense of control over events. Four, relatedness, how safe we feel with others. And finally, fifth, fairness, how fair we perceive the exchanges between people to be. As David explained in our discussion, these five domains activate the same threat and reward responses in our brain that we rely on for physical survival. This explains why ourselves and others will sometimes have strong emotional reactions in social situations, both at home and at work. It's a fascinating topic and one I know that listeners will enjoy. In our conversation, David and I discuss how the SCARF model has grown in relevance during the pandemic. We look at the window of opportunity companies and leaders have to solve for autonomy and build a better post-pandemic normal. We look at the role of leaders in enabling their organisations to be truly diverse, equitable and inclusive. And finally, we touch on how companies should approach performance management in the future. This episode is a must listen for anyone interested or involved in neuroscience and its role in leadership, collaboration, culture and performance. So that's business leaders, chief people officers and anyone in a behavioural science, people analytics or HR business partner role. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by Quantum Workplace. Success starts with your people. When employees succeed, your business succeeds. Quantum Workplace equips organisations with the most reliable solutions for employee, team and business success. Their employee engagement and performance management tools help organisations listen to, understand and leverage their talent to move business forward. Quantum Workplace's intuitive platform includes employee surveys, goals, recognition, feedback, one-on-one meetings and robust people intelligence and analytics. Quantum Workplace has partnered with thousands of best places to work on their talent strategies, including Fossil, DSW, Panera, Redfin, Getty Images, BKD and more. To learn more, visit www.quantumworkplace.com forward slash digital HR. That's www.quantumworkplace.com forward slash digital HR. Today, I'm delighted to welcome David Rock, co-founder and chief executive officer at the Neuro Leadership Institute to the Digital HR Leaders podcast. 
David, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to yourself, as well as introducing the, the Neuro Leadership Institute? I guess the first thing, I'm originally Australian, um, born and bred there, based now full-time in, um, in New York City. It's been an amazing year to be there, actually. Lots of highs and lows. Um, yeah. <laughs> and uh, quite the experience. Um, I, I have a doctorate in the neuroscience of leadership, uh, one of the first people to get that. And I, I coined the term neuroleadership um, around 2007. Essentially, when I'd been doing leadership development culture work for a decade or so, and I noticed that adding like, a real biological foundation to the leadership work was tremendously helpful uh, for people to essentially have bigger insights about themselves and leadership overall. And it, it just provided this fantastic understanding. So spent the last, it's actually been 23 years all up, uh, but spent the last roughly 15 or so really building a foundation for the neuroscience of leadership. So writing academic papers and publishing a journal, um, been involved in about 50 or 60 research papers, um, run a, a big global conference every year. Uh, and then my organization also consults right now with about half of the Fortune 100 um, on uh, really how to make their, 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 their organizations better for humans, um, but through science. Yeah. And so, uh, so that's what that's what we do. But I continue to do research right now. I'm very focused on the hybrid workplace, how to get that right, and all the, the noise around innovation and uh, all this stuff. And we have a we have a big diversity, equity, and inclusion practice as well that was big before the pandemic and continued to be you know, obviously since then. Um, so that's essentially I'm a, a, a I'm a, a change like a change practitioner, um, leadership practitioner first, neuroscience second and wrote uh, three or four books on this and a lot of papers to help everyone understand the deeper biology of leadership activities, not to assess leaders, but to actually make them better. I can imagine you've been quite busy in the last year with those things. <laughs> That's for sure. Um, you developed the, the SCARF model in 2008, um, which has been widely adopted to, to enhance self-awareness and social interactions. Um, interestingly, a few of my colleagues at Insight 222, like Ian, who is uh, producing this episode, and Caroline, are particularly big fans of the SCARF model. Can you tell listeners a little bit more about the model? Yeah, sure. It actually took uh, about three years to develop. I published it in 2008, the first time. Um, but I developed it because I kept seeing this, this pattern in lots of different research that was coming out at the time. And the pattern was they were just starting to use fMRI to really uh, look at what the brain was doing during social interactions for the first time. So for a long time, fMRI and other technologies like EEG and PET scans and CAT scans, all this stuff, they, they were basically very isolated activities. So you'd study a brain, you know, trying to remember something. But yeah. um, about sort of 15 to 20 years ago, they started to be able to create, if not actual social interactions, then at least facsimiles of social interactions. And they started to basically say, hey, look what the brain does when people are trying to influence each other or understand each other or, um, you know, interact in any way. And what, 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 there was this sort of whole birth of a field, uh, social cognitive effective neuroscience, it's called or sometimes social neuroscience. This whole field has started with a handful of scientists and now has well over 500 scientists in this space, probably nudging towards 1,000. Um, this whole field started to emerge that was essentially saying, hey, look what the brain does when you, you, you interact. And one of the things that was really surprising to me was uh, the way that things that are just social issues, like um, you know, feeling maybe left out of a meeting, for example, um, 
activated a, a surprising network in the brain that you wouldn't expect would be activated. Like uh, essentially the, the, the pain network, not exactly the same as the pain network, but very, very similar um, yeah. with, with the same kind of components. Like it looked like the same kind of network as physical pain. And it worked in a very similar way as well. And so I started to see this and this same finding showed up in all these different social constructs. So, you know, feeling left out of a meeting, feeling someone else was better than you, feeling treated unfairly, feeling connected to someone, disconnected to someone. And the same was happening on the, the positive side. So there was, a, there was a threat that would occur if you say left out of a meeting, but there was a reward network activated if you were included in a meeting. And the, it turns out the, in both cases, there are very strong responses, very similar to like literally pleasure and pain. And that explained a lot like, okay, so the, so the body's reacting as if there's a real pain response, um, which is, is um, uh, obviously a, a strong, you know, a strong, strong response. And is a scientist um, uh, who studied, um, who studied kind of loneliness um, for a long time. And he, he, um, he explained how uh, feeling lonely is the body's, response to dangerously low resources in such a way that you, you have to pay attention. Um, yeah. Exactly the way that hunger is a response to dangerously low resources such that you have to pay attention, right? So uh, in, in one case, um, you know, uh, loneliness is, is, you know, you don't have enough people around you that if anything goes wrong, you'll be okay. Um, and so you get this, this, this response that you want to fix. Um, yeah. Anyways, that was an example. Uh, but the, um, the the point is, these these social experiences were activating really strong uh, threat and reward responses. And I thought it'd be so great to be able to organize that and be able to kind of remember with minimal effort all the different kinds of things that people react to. Um, and over about literally three years, between three and three and a half years, I tried a number of different frameworks and tested this out with lots of different scientists as well as audiences and there was at one point i didn't have the f and it was cars and different things and and eventually yeah. settled on scarf um in fact the acronym came to me at the bottom of a swimming pool in um the philippines at the time um but <laughs> it, it was just like suddenly came to me in a flash and uh I, it, the, the word the concept all the different elements i'd been mulling over it for a while and then i quickly raced back to my room and looked it up and tried to see you know if it made sense and and started to use that. So that's that's the background. But it was really three and a half years of really immersing in this question of could we organize essentially what I understand now as the big motivators? Because yeah. um, these are these are our strong intrinsic motivators. And in some ways, Scarf is a is an evolution of Desi and Ryan's work on on you know mastery and autonomy and all this stuff that you know which was self determination theory, which was looking at you know why people do what they do, but um, it, Scarf has just a much more of a dynamic social um, architecture to it, whereas some of the older theories were more kind of individualistic. Scarf kind of describes what happens when we're interacting with each other. So walk us through the five elements of Scarf, and I think it'd be helpful to understand um, how that how how they apply in the workplace. Because I guess having looked through the framework myself, you can see there's 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 great things there for managers of teams, but also for people in teams as well to to help understand, as you said, how how they react in different situations. Well, firstly, scarf is what I now understand as something 
we call disruptive language. And disruptive language is something that you don't have to work to remember. It just like pops into your consciousness in relevant moments. Um, it's just, you know, disruptive in that sense. So once you learn it, you sort of can't unlearn it and yeah. it shows up everywhere. Um, and it's really describing why people are reacting emotionally um, or, you know, or just positively, why they're motivated, why they're demotivated, like, you know, what's going on as we interact. And the five domains, uh, I'll walk through them. Each one can either be a threat, so a negative, like a sense of danger or loss, um, which tends to be stronger, by the way, than the positive, right? So each one can either be negative, which is quite strong, or positive, which can balance out the negative, can kind of bring it out, right? So the first one is status. And so your brain's constantly detecting your status compared to other people's. Uh, and not so much socioeconomic, that's a construct, it's more sociometric, uh, which is a concept of where you are in relation to the people around you day to day. Like in a team, for example. Or in an organization, you might be the CEO, so you're the highest possible status in that group. You might be two down from the CEO, so you're kind of the third status level. Um, so so we, we, the brain naturally knows our status in every community. We know exactly what our status is, you know, who we have to pay attention to, who has to pay attention to us. Um, and there's brain studies showing, you know, every person we interact with, we immediately automatically unconsciously try to work out our status and theirs. And we're actually uncomfortable until it's resolved. And then yeah. the, the diet is much more, much more kind of effective once, we're, once we've solved that, we can sort of get back to work. Um, so there's a, it's a natural drive to understand status. But what, what happens is uh, feeling higher status is a nice little reward response. You feel positive and actually lengthens your life over time. And doesn't, but but a, a potential status reduction, like a potential threat to status, like someone telling you you've done something wrong or you know, fearing, like, fearing you've made a mistake or speaking up in public, right? These things are quite strong responses and it's variable between people, but everyone has that, that possible status threat. And a lot of management, but also just working, uh, involves you know, trying to look good and trying not to look bad. Um, yeah. and, and this is driving our behavior all the time. So there are, there are three different brain networks that light up according to the differential and status between you and someone else that then guides your behavior in these really, really significant ways. So anyway, that's one. Um, and it's really, it's relevant to everything, um, every interaction we have with everyone, but particularly important for, for managers. Um, yeah. The second one is certainty, which is literally our ability to predict what's going to happen moment to moment. Um, it, it's really important to understand that the whole brain is built on, on predictive patterns, not predictive analytics directly, but uh, the, the way I hold this you know, bottle of water right now is not, it's not something I'm doing the first time. Uh, I've, I've done it a million times before, something similar. Um, and the brain has organized all those patterns and told me exactly how to hold this. It's a little heavier than normal things. So it's, it's making sure I'm holding it firmly, you know? Yeah. So there's all this, all, all our actions are actually based on predictions, based on past experiences. And I don't know if you've seen those uh, emails that went around where sort of most letters were removed, but you could still see what someone was trying to say, even though most of the letters were wrong. Because your brain doesn't read every letter, it predicts based on probability of what's going on. Yeah. So which is a long way of saying when, when things become uncertain, you, um, you get anxious. And um, when you can't predict what's going to happen because you have no past pattern to draw on or you can't see where we're going, uh, you get a pretty strong threat response. And there's a series of studies showing that 
uncertainty is more um, threatening than actual threat. Um, so if you, you, know, you show someone a happy face, an angry face, an uncertain face, the uncertain face lights up the threat response more than the actual threatening face. Um, and so you know, a little bit of uncertainty is quite strong. On the flip side, though, giving people some certainty, uh, answering questions, removing ambiguity, these kinds of things activate the reward response. So that's really powerful. Uh, the third one is autonomy. I've been talking about autonomy a lot in the last few months because I think it's, the, it's, the, it's kind of the killer app for, for helping people through this crazy time. Um, yeah. And autonomy is basically a feeling of, of, of you're in control and you have choices. Um, and so often when something's really stressful, it's because we've, we've unconsciously decided we have no control and we, we, we don't know what to do. We don't have choices. And that becomes really stressful. You know? um, and then we realize an aspect we can control and it becomes more manageable. Um, so uncontrollable yeah. stress is a term that they use um, for, for something that's really overwhelming. And uh, when, you, when you sort of get to work one day and you just feel completely overwhelmed, it's because literally you just feel out of control. Um, yeah. And then, and then you build a list of your top ten things, and you order them, and you just start on the three, and you feel all better again, right? All you've done is increased your sense of autonomy, um, just your, your perception of it. Right? So autonomy is a feeling of control. Again, when it goes down, when your boss comes in and says, "Hey, you got to do this, you know, right now, this exact way, this exact, you know, follow this exact thing," your autonomy's gone down. Your certainty's gone up a bit, but your autonomy's gone down a lot, um, and it can be a threat. But on the other hand, being given choices and you know, your boss saying, hey, look, we need to get here. Um, here are three different ways you could do it. It's up to you. Um, yeah. That's increasing your autonomy, even though the boss has kind of been pretty prescriptive. You've still got a greater sense of control than you expected. So, so autonomy is a sense of control. Uh, relatedness is a big one. So we've got the S for status, C for certainty, A for autonomy, R is for relatedness. Um, and relatedness is literally having an experience of being in an in-group with people. Uh, you and I are both David, so we've got a strange in-group. Um, and um, uh, we have in-group with people where we have similar experiences, right, similar past experiences, or it feels like we understand each other, or even stronger is similar goals. So when you both are trying to work towards something together, it doesn't matter how different you are, how different your name, age, gender, everything is. If you're working with someone on a similar task with a similar goal, you create in-group, you create relatedness. It's a bit like when you meet, I don't know, if you meet this, someone for the first time who supports the same sports team as you, you've immediately got that connection and relatedness yes, to, to talk to. Absolutely. Uh, we're both from the Commonwealth. So, you know, we, there's, a, there's, a diff, there's different levels of relatedness and different kinds of relatedness. But essentially, the, when relatedness is low, so when you feel more like you're in an outgroup with someone, um, your brain processes really, really differently than when you feel like you're in an in-group with someone. So you want to... Um, really have that in-group experience with everyone you possibly can. Essentially, you, you treat in-group members like you treat yourself yeah. um, in just about every way. And then the final one is uh, fairness. The F is fairness. And it was a really interesting one. It came later in the model because uh, originally I was like, well, maybe it's status, something else. But it turns out that fairness is something that we read really directly. Um, and, you know, right now it's um, – it's the 21st of April and, you know, last night, you know, U.S. Eastern time and around 4 or 5 p.m., the entire country breathed a sigh of relief because, you know, the George Floyd um, situation was kind of resolved somewhat in a way that felt fair. And I think pretty much the entire country was waiting for things to really explode if he was acquitted. And it would have been intrinsically unfair to the point that we probably would have seen riots and 
and real disruption to uh, millions of people's lives uh, because something felt unfair. So clearly fairness <laughs> matters a lot. Um, yeah. And um, we, we, it's not just in, in legal issues, it's in politics, it's in our interaction socially, it's in business. We're actually tracking who's fair and who's not and degrees of it all the time. So anyway, you've got these five domains, status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, fairness. Essentially, these are the things the brain feels really passionately about particularly avoiding negatives we feel you know we feel passionately about avoiding negatives because they're really bad but we also feel passionately about obtaining positives um that's the architecture overall and it's driving our behavior really all the time that's great i have a really great explanation for for our for our listeners you know obviously you referred to at the start it's been quite a year hasn't it um you know how does the scarf model um remain relevant or maybe is even more relevant in the in the current pandemic environment well, we realized it was significantly more relevant. Um, I mean, when, when February, March hit last year, we sort of saw it coming because we got a lot of very global clients in China and other places, and we could kind of, we were watching it. Um, when March hit, we pretty much thought we were going to be out of business by June, um, even though 78% of all our work was already virtual and our whole company was working virtually. Um, so, so it was very seamless for us to transition, both the delivery of the work and working. Um, it was just pretty much every company stopped doing anything to do with developing people for a few months. And so we were like, oh, it's been a great 23 years. Where are we going next? Um, but it turned out that, um, I mean, our vision is making organizations better for humans through science. And suddenly humans needed a whole lot of help and companies were listening to a whole lot more science. So, uh, you know, we got actually incredibly busy and had the biggest year we've ever had by a long way. Um, because companies were wanting to do things to help their people survive and thrive. Now, yeah. at, the, at the heart of this, uh, I mean, the heart of the pandemic was a huge drop in certainty, autonomy, and relatedness, right? People had no idea what was going on, no sense of control, and were disconnected from all the people that normally help them, you know, calm and soothe. Um, so we were talking a lot about um, labeling that and understanding why that's uh, been difficult, and then also putting in place what we call buffers against those drops so so you know how can you offset those effects with increasing certainty in your home office or increasing control of your diet and exercise or like what can you do to buffer your sense self against those so we did a lot of work helping individuals briefing ceos about kind of what you can do personally to get through this time and then social like in the social construct of an organization um you also had a drop in status for people because they were like lost their corner office, uh, but also just felt like a complete beginner at this new world. Um, yeah. And you had big issues with fairness uh, as well for a lot of people with having to, you know, work at home and manage children. Um, a lot of women suffering, you know, incredible pressure um, and people having to go to, 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 you know, a factory, not having to go to a factory, all this stuff. There's a lot of fairness issues. So, so one of the things that we talked uh, to a lot of organizations about was, sending uh, what we call positive scarf signals everywhere you can, yeah. which is, is how do we continue to celebrate wins through status? How do we create clarity in any way possible with certainty, you know, communicating a ton, um, et cetera. And, and, and one of the biggest variables that we came to was autonomy, which was the more you can let people be in control of not just where they work, that was sort of required, but also when they work and how they work. The more you could do that, the easier it is for people to actually manage their, not just their lives, but their, their, their stresses. So it became really relevant and we brought back some research that we lightly touched on a few years ago around the, the different levels of threat we experience. 
to give yeah. companies a, a way to measure this. And so if you have you know, all five domains of SCARF in a threat, it's going to be level three, which is the worst. You know, it's really intense. You know, if you fire someone unfairly with no recourse, no information, um, and, you know, they, they, you, you're going to send someone really, really upset. But um, if, if, you, if you do it in a fair way with information and give them some sense of control in the process or that, uh, it's, it's manageable. So in a similar way, we we're talking about how can you use autonomy? to offset the total tonnage of threat. So it's not a level three, which is the worst. It's maybe a one. Um, so it's inc incredibly relevant, very, very relevant. And actually now with going back to, to work and companies trying to kind of force people back to the office, it's, you know, it's relevant again um, as a tool for thinking about how to do hybrid work the best way possible. So we're now doing a lot of research into that and thinking about that as well. And then, of course, the, you know, the, the, the whole... Um, uh, racial crisis that happened in North America, but really globally, um, it's it's extremely relevant to that as well. Yeah, I mean, I was, I, when I was reading, looking through the model and analyzing it, you know, that I think in relatedness, you talk about the importance of um, you know one to ones, you know, and it's interesting. I see some research from Microsoft; they analyzed, you know, did a lot of analysis of um, you know virtual working and its impact on on employees, and they found the importance that managers are even more important during. Um, remote working in terms of touching in, making sure people are okay, being very clear with communications, showing vulnerability, uh, because let's yeah. be honest, it's been new for all of us. And, you know, um, we had um, we had someone on the podcast recently who talked about, I've had to open up my life a little bit more to, to my right. uh, my team. You know, they've seen I've got young children, they, they're, they're, and now it's a joke, which one's going to come into the meeting, you know? So, uh, so I guess that 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 vulnerability helps, I imagine, a, a, a lot of the elements in in the framework. That's relatedness, right? So leaders who kept their cameras on and showed the chaos at home increased the sense of relatedness because that people had now a shared experience with them. It's like, oh, you're human, but also we have shared goals, like feeding the kids and trying to keep them out of the office while we're working. Like we've got shared goals, right? So definitely increased the sense of relatedness in uh, in quite a big way. Uh, but that was important. We were talking a lot about showing some vulnerability and just, you know, a decent amount and uh, really, um, you know, showing that you're human. And that was one of the upsides of this time is that, uh, you know, our, our humanity was more acceptable in organizations. Yeah. You know, it sort of had to be in, in, in everything that was happening. Let's, let's, let's dig a bit more. Let's, so we, lots of talk about hybrid working, lots of talk about the new normal and all these other, other jargon that we hear. But Obviously, what we want to do is make sure that we're building a better normal. I think that's a phrase that, that, that you've used. What does that What does that look like? Everything that you see about um, individual engagement and performance and all that. The, the one of the really big variables is people's relationship with their boss. And you know, you've, your 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 boss. If you don't get on with your boss, you feel treated unfairly. You feel uncertain. You feel like they're attacking you. All this stuff. You definitely, you know, it's a real issue. And so a lot of what we've got to do to build a better normal is educate bosses, leaders of all levels, um, just about how to interact with humans um, more effectively. A lot of the push in organizations has sort of been the other way. Like, let's, let's, let's put all the stuff that we need to do into software. Let's, let's, you know, kind of take the human out of our interactions. Let's give people a number for performance ratings, you know, let's, let's to avoid having to have a conversation. And so I, I think there's a, there's a move to kind of humanize management a bit more. Um, it's been kind of dehumanized for, for quite some time. Um, 
So, I mean, overall, I think that's a piece of it. I mean, one of the powerful things about Scarf um, is that you literally see in real time something that's about to go wrong and you can change, right? You know, yeah. you, you literally ahead of time see yourself about to say, you know, why did you send that? Um, and you go, oh, that's going to create a status threat. Um, maybe instead I'll say, hey, what are your thoughts about uh, the next step here? Um, and ask the person a question which raises their status and, by the way, their autonomy, right, versus attacking. And you actually get to the same place with much less threat and much, you know, better outcome. So it gives you this language to see ahead of time what, a, 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 you know, a, a conversation might do or an email or a strategy, right, a whole strategy or even a whole, you know, product launch. Like you can actually think about any kind of interaction at any scale through the lens of SCARF and ahead of time improve it. Um, and because in almost every situation, less threat is better um, and more reward is better. Right? Threat's stronger and easier to get, but has all these negative consequences. Reward is longer lasting, more sustainable and better generally. So how do you minimize threat, maximize reward through SCARF? During an interaction, you can also see what might go wrong and label it and make different you know, different different plans. And then after an interaction, something you know that's gone horribly wrong, you can also clean it up. So, so Scarf gives you this language in real time to improve the quality of your interactions by reducing the unnecessary noise and creating more positive interactions, which, by the way, increases creativity, right? More positive interactions means people are literally more open-minded. Their minds literally open up when they're in more of a, a positive state. They have more insights, more creative. They can hold more information in mind, all that. So, you know, engagement is positive scarf. In, in many ways. Engagement is uh, people experiencing, getting smarter, being more certain, having more control, you know, working with people they like on, on good things together and being treated fairly. Like that's, that's engaged, positive stuff. So it's, it's just, it's a language for increasing engagement. It's a language for um, inclusion, for increasing inclusion. It's a language for um, uh, just disrupting the, the, the bad things that happen as well. Um, we've, we've built other disruptive language. We've got a whole framework around bias as well that's hugely impactful. Does a similar thing that SCARF does for motivationists, does with catching biases ideally ahead of time or as they happen. Um, also a disruptive piece of language, but that's a whole other uh, that's a whole other podcast for another time. Maybe that's another podcast. That's your I think that's your seeds model. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We'll put a link to that in the the, the, the publicity around this. But yeah, that, I think that might be podcast part two. Right? <laughs> Um, so I suppose in your example earlier, when you were saying, you know, if a manager's having an interaction with one of their team and they say, this is the outcome we've got to get to, you can either do it one of three ways. Instead of saying that, this is the outcome we've got to get to, how do you, how do you think we can get there? Something like that. So, so you actually yeah. give that autonomy, I guess, to the to the to, to team member. It's respecting that a, a status attack creates unnecessary noise and a raise in autonomy is really helpful. Right. Yeah. Um, I worked with one of the smartest people I've ever met for a few years ago. She ended up winning the, the most value generating CEO of the year for the Fortune um, uh, 500. Um, and was Sarah Matthews. She was the CEO of Dun and Bradstreet for a while. Incredibly smart. Um, an Indian woman, just like hyper intelligent and driven and all this stuff. Um, and she was in a you know, CEO in a very kind of male dominated field. Um, Anyway, cut kind a of long story short, she, she read one of the first papers I put out on SCARF, someone sent it to her, and she, she wrote to me and said, I really need to talk to you about this. Um, this is like 
messing with my head completely. I need to understand this. Can you come and see me? And I went out and saw her and we sat down and kind of walked through it and got a little whiteboard out and kind of explained it. And she sort of went quiet for a moment, had this big insight. She was like, that's why people don't say anything in my meetings because um, they're having like threat responses. And I'd never realized I was attacking their sense of status by continually firing questions and firing things. I just thought I was being smart. And she's like, I, I, I want to really like, I want to make them as smart as possible. And you're telling me every threat that I create makes them less intelligent. I said, yeah, literally drops their IQ. You know, when you walk in the room, their IQ drops before you say a word by nature of you being higher status. And then if they feel like you're constantly attacking them, they're on edge. It's literally shutting down their prefrontal or making them less, not just less creative, but less functional. And she, she really took that to heart, actually changed her whole leadership style and went on to, to win this award. And, uh, we continue to connect to this day, but um, it was really, it was this poignant sort of insight she had. I still remember that moment where she was like, wow, I had no idea just that my style was accidentally literally dropping people's IQ every time we, we meet. And I said, well, good news, you've hired smarter people than you realize. You just got to <laughs> leave them alone a bit. Um, so anyway, that's, uh, yeah, that's one of the effects of, uh, of, of these things. You know, I think you, you, you've said that you see a window of opportunity for organizations to build a better normal before the workforce maybe settles into new ways of working. I mean, again, it, how long is a piece of string? But how long is that window of opportunity and, and why? I think it'll definitely be gone by Christmas unless we see, like, um, you know, this thing going differently than how it currently looks. Um, I mean, what's happening right now in Brazil and India, other places could be a you know, warning of, of, of this thing running a lot longer, a lot deeper. but. It's hard to say, but assuming particularly, I mean, if we focus just on, say, you know, UK, North America, Western, you know, nations like that, lots of people are going to be vaccinated and, you know, we, there'll probably be some semblance of, um, of, of things being somewhat normal, you know, by the end of this year, I think. And I, and I think what, what's happening, there's some research on this, while there's a lot of change going on, that's when you can do big things. And yeah. Uh, it turns out while things are stable, it's really hard to create change. But when there's already change, you can get a lot more. So there's that effect. There's a lot of research on that. There's also the fact that people are emotionally raw and just like ready for things to be different. And once they settle back into like a pattern, um, they'll be like, I don't want to change that pattern. I've settled back in. Yeah. But while everything's sort of unfrozen and in flux and, and emotionally raw, right, you know, you, you actually can do really different, you know, really big things. Um, so, so I would say that's going to be gone by the end of the year, unless some other things happen. Um, we could get pandemic 2.0, such would <laughs> not, but but we'll see. Um, but I, that's the, yeah. So I, I think there's a window. Uh, now if you're a talent practitioner, if you're an HR practitioner, an OD practitioner, you probably care about, um, making, you know, making companies better for humans. You probably care about, um, you know, people more than you care about, say, technology or, you know, finance in that way. You're a people person, right? You're, if you went into that space, you probably intrinsically like making the world better for humans. Um, what I would say is this year, 2021, may be the year that you'll do your best work, your most revolutionary work um, because of this effect, that you, you have this window of opportunity. So, um, you know, I, I say go the revolutionaries, um, do really big things this year that you might never be able to do, you know, in, in years to come. This could be a once in a hundred year event. So far it is. Uh, hopefully it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> this, this amount of change won't, may not be with us for another hundred years. Um, 
in terms of uh, people's willingness to really, really change the paradigm for how work is done. And in terms of SCARF, I mean, I mean, I can see how it's a it can be a, a great framework to help drive engagement uh, and performance. I guess you know how do you then measure that you're doing that? How do you? Me- I mean, obviously, there's ways of measuring engagement and ways of measuring performance. But in the context of SCARF, how do you how do you measure that you're you're doing things effectively? Yeah, I mean, we we were in the measurement business even before the neuroscience like research really took off for us. Um, so we've been measuring for 23 years all the way since the, the beginning. And yeah. in the last seven or eight years, we got really uh, much more fine-grained about how to measure effectively and really looked at the research. And ultimately, I mean, we do a few things at the Institute. We do original research. We publish that. We just you know tell people about it. We also consult with organizations to build strategy um, in, in any part of the talent framework. And then we also drive change. So we'll, we'll, we'll help a company of 100,000 people become more inclusive in a month, for example. We do these big scalable change initiatives. And what, what we do in any time we're trying to drive, drive change is we're looking at what are the key things you would see someone doing differently uh, on yeah. a weekly basis if they were changed. So if someone's more inclusive, we know that they're going to find common ground with people quite deliberately, right? As, as, as an act of inclusion. That's one of the most valuable things to do. And we teach them that. And so we want to ask how many times in the last week did you see your manager really work hard to create shared goals or, you know, find things in common? Um, and, and, and how many times did they do that? Um, and so as you collect enough data for enough people about these particular habits, you can see like, oh, people are actually uh, creating a more inclusive environment. Now, inclusion for us is positive scarf. It's sending positive signals of status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, fairness. Um, we simplify it into three steps rather than five around inclusion that kind of covers all of SCARF. Um, so just to you know, make it simpler. So you don't have to remember five things, just three. But in, in the end, what we want to know is how many times in the last week did your leader um, you know, find common ground or lift people up or really work harder to create more clarity and sense of control um, so that people really felt included and literally how many times. And then we look at the percentage of that um, and we start to collect really, really interesting data. Um, so we know, for example, with our inclusion work that um, if we do even a reasonable job, 80 to 90% of any number of people we are absolutely convinced are being more inclusive now um, in a really meaningful way. Um, yeah. If we do an amazing job, it might be 90 to 95%. And this could be of, of 10,000 people um, all around the world. So we, we're in the habit activation business at the sort of commercial end of what we do is we're in the habit activation business. And then we measure that really deliberately, um, literally by you know, the week to week habits that are activated. Great. That's really, really good. And in leaderships, you know, we talk, we've touched on it a bit, but you know, you're a leader of a company, you know, or, or part of the, the leadership team there. You know, what is leadership's role in, in building a better normal? So there's a couple of perspectives about this. Firstly, everyone talks about leadership having to be top down. You've got to work with the leaders first to change the culture. I, I disagree. I, I think the leaders are the hardest people to work with to change. You get much more change from people who are more open. Who, who are not fixed in their, you know, ways. And, you know, um, so I'm not a huge fan of, of the top-down model. Now, do you need leaders to be involved and engaged in a, a change initiative? Absolutely. But one of the better ways to do that is upward pressure, where you say, yeah. you know, hey, if you've got a company of 10,000 employees uh, with, you know, 
uh, a thousand people managers and a hundred top leaders. Um, you know, you say to your hundred top leaders, "Hey, we're about to teach your thousand managers uh, literally this month, all at once, uh, to be more inclusive." So you better like know what's happening and more model. Um, and then we'd rather teach those thousand people all at once and put all this upward pressure on these people, and then you get real change. But you try and like do something with the, the hundred. First, you never get it scheduled. Secondly, they don't turn up. Thirdly, when they do turn up, they're doing other things. They don't cascade it down. And then when you try and cascade it, the program you built for them doesn't actually work for the rest because it just doesn't scale with costs and all this stuff. So we're a bit sort of backward with how we think about sort of involving leaders in change. So having said all that, one of the biggest effects of, uh, from social science about kind of why people change is thinking everyone else is changing and particularly uh, higher status people. So if higher status people are doing something, you do pay a lot of attention. So there is a flip side to everything I just said, which is that you do want, you know, the higher status people to be role modeling things and, um, and, and you know, doing things differently. Um, but you can't, but I wouldn't say start with them. I would say start with like everyone and put the upward, upward pressure. So it is important. The normative effect is really, uh, is really important for sure. It's quite interesting because in your example of, of 10,000, you know, let's make let's make the mass easy for me. Hundred top leaders, thousand people managers. That leaves you with eight thousand nine hundred employees, shall we say? If you yeah. if you get the thousand working, then you're effectively affecting eight thousand nine hundred eighty nine percent of the organisation. And then and then you said, will that then filter up to the hundred to manage the thousand? That's it tends to. I mean, we looked at the data uh, on that percentage that changed when you do a briefing for the leaders versus you don't, and we do get about a fifteen percent bump in the percentage of people now doing things differently weekly if you brief the leaders um, versus yeah. sort of don't involve them. So it is helpful to brief them. But the interesting thing also is with those thousand people managers, the best strategy is to say, you guys are doing great. We're going to give you uh, some tools to teach the 8,900 people how to be even better. Um, and so, so we think about manager-led learning where you're giving the managers really easy to use tools so that they can scale because now you can impact a whole company in a month. Um, now you can make a company of 10,000 or 100,000 or a million um, much more inclusive in a month and a couple of months later work on something else and you can nudge the whole organization very quickly. Uh, and that's our, that's our model for driving real behavior change into and down into organizations. Great. Well, David, unfortunately, we come to the final question. I think we could probably talk a lot longer. We, could, we haven't even gotten to the seeds model yet. So um, we're asking everyone this, this question on the series. You know, many companies have done away with their annual Man, uh, performance management cycle over the last few years but we haven't seen a new consistent model replace it as quickly as everyone expected how do you think companies should approach performance management in the future i think i mean we've been thinking about this a lot um for a long time as well we were one of the organizations that really put forward the idea of of getting rid of ratings in fact we published a piece that became one of the biggest ever for strategy and business magazine which was called kill your performance ratings um, still makes the rounds and it explains the really the the underpinning neuroscience of why they might feel good to have ratings but they do more harm that's invisible than they do good yeah. so um and and you know the people are catching on to that more and more that the normal rating so there's been a huge move to more, what you'd call more continuous performance management um i mean ultimately the really big skill that i think all people managers need is uh firstly defining what great looks like um, so that people have more certainty and more autonomy. Um, yeah. And then you also have a shared goal with relatedness, right? Um, 
So defining what great looks like as opposed to like monitoring activity. So on the one hand, there's like managers monitoring activity. On the other hand, there's like, we're going to show you what great really looks like so you can self-manage towards it. Um, and then we can, then, then it's not so much about 40 hours. It's about, you know, are you producing great work? Um, so I think there's a real lack in defining what great looks like. Um, then there's a real issue, obviously, around feedback. Our research shows that asking for feedback um, should be the driver, not giving feedback. So we want to teach people to ask uh, because when a manager asks, you know, a peer for feedback, the peer asks back. If a manager asks one of their team for feedback, it creates tremendous trust. Then the team member asks them. And our research shows it roughly halves the stress level for all parties, for the person asking and receiving. We published several papers on this. So asking for feedback drops the stress for both sides about half um, in the study that we did, which makes, makes it easier to receive, but also you know, you're more likely to give more, more accurate, honest feedback. Um, so there's a whole kind of different model around feedback which should be driven by an asking culture. Yeah. Um, and, th those, and, and then the third thing I think is you know, really important is having a growth mindset um, and um, is, is, is really helping people get better rather than just you know, pushing people to try to look good. Um, is, is how can we continually help this person improve and focus on progress? Um, so those are some of the things I think are really central to, uh, you know, a new way of thinking about performance management is, is, you know, less management, more, you know, clarity about excellence, um, and, you know, less giving feedback, more asking for feedback and really generating insight through that um, and less trying to, you know, follow up and, and, and assess people and more looking at what's next and developing people. So we think those three things are, are super important in uh, the next generation of, of performance cultures. And I guess, as you, as you were saying earlier, there's a great opportunity to, to build that into the new normal now, I guess. Companies were forced to get rid of like annual goals because they were just laughable for most mm. of the last year. Even quarterly goals were laughable a lot. And a lot of people went back to more like stand-up meetings where you just, you know, what are we doing this week within maybe a context of this month? It's much more dynamic, much more agile. I mean, many, many organizations develop the kind of agility kind of by force they sort of had to that they've always been trying to. Um, much more flexibility, much more agility. And a lot of organizations have come through this time, obviously with incredible challenges, incredible crises, but a lot of organizations have also done really well in this time um, in stripping out unnecessary costs, um, becoming much more flexible, much more customer responsive. Um, at, at NLI, we interacted with six times as many customers over a 12 month period than we did the year before um, because we just got into the online world and um, yeah. you know, maximized it. So lots of organizations have become more flexible and adaptive through this time. And I think the performance management frameworks have sort of had to follow suit. Um, although there's certainly some people following, you know, holding on tight to, to, to those structures as sort of pay mechanisms as well. Well, David, thanks very much for being a guest on the, on the show. Um, can you let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you follow you on social media, find out more about the Neuro Leadership Institute? Yeah, absolutely. Um, lots of different ways. My main book is called Your Brain at Work. And it's the best way of, of really digging into SCARF. It's got more than just SCARF in there, but it's uh, Your Brain at Work. I just put out a new edition of that. Um, my, I have a blog. Uh, we've had over uh, lots and lots and lots of readers about blog. It's just at neuroleadership.com. You can see the blog there. I uh, also have our own podcast with about three or 400,000 downloads so far, uh, also called Your Brain at Work. Uh, but neuroleadership.com is the main site for, uh, for work. And we do have um, learning experiences for individuals, although most of our work is with organizations. We do have some great learning experiences for individuals as well. 
So neuroleadership.com is a great place to start, or my book is called Your Brain at Work, my most recent book. Great. David, it's been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. Um, I'm sure our listeners have, have learned a lot as well. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Greg. Uh, appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. You can subscribe via your podcast app of choice. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show on your podcast app and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. If you haven't already, do check out the My HR Future Academy at myhrfuture.com. It's a learning experience platform for HR professionals looking to get certified in people analytics, digital HR, and workforce planning. You can also subscribe to my weekly newsletter by going to the My HR Future website. That's all for this episode, but please make sure you tune in next week when we'll be speaking to Joe Len Anderson, CHRO and Global Head of Human Resources at BMY Mellon about the central role HR is playing in the bank's business transformation. So don't miss that one. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and I'll see you next time.